want to welcome you to John Wesley United Methodist Church in Houston's podcast. I'm Marty Dunbar, one of the pastors. Have you ever asked yourself exactly who God has placed in your life that you are called to love and nourish? Have you ever thought about the times when you wanted to say something to somebody or maybe you left something unsaid and there's a lot of regret? There's a lot of things following Jesus that we are called to do, called to love, called to live a particular style of life. And so some of the people we're called to nourish are put into our path. Others that we are called to reconcile with are also um, part of who we are and our calling to love others and call to love Jesus. And so we explore a little bit of that as we look at one more reference of when Jesus appeared to his disciples and followers. And that's with Peter and the disciples in the Sea of Galilee as he has breakfast as he reinstates Peter to go and love and feed his sheep. May God bless your week. Last Sunday afternoon, had the opportunity to get on an airplane and fly to Atlanta, Georgia and drive up to Alpharetta, Georgia I went to a conference called the Drive Conference. It's at North Point Community Church, which is Andy Stanley's church in Alpharetta, Georgia. And it's a wonderful conference. We went there, a group of staff of us went there a couple of years ago. And then this year I took Chris McCarthy, our youth director, along with me. And it's a great time for inspiration, a great time to remember what God is doing in the life of the local church and how he is using the local church to do amazing things across the world because there are people from all different parts of the world that attend that conference and it's a wonderful time because you can actually go to breakout sessions and and they share some of their best practices of how they accomplish what they accomplish as a church community in multiple sites, but then they also allow you to ask questions and people have feedback back and forth and you get to learn from people from around the country and around the world. It was also called the Drive Conference, and so it was so fitting that uh, my sister works for Enterprise Car Rental, and so she gets me great deals on rental cars, and we needed a rental car, so just happened that I got a um, Dodge Challenger with a Hemi V8 engine in it, (laughs) and I'm not saying we broke 100, but we might have possibly actually broke 100 in a couple of seconds. Uh, But anyway, so we are at the drive conference, so you need to actually drive faster or farther, anyway, is, was their motto. But it's pretty cool. Um, that's a side note. If you want more information, let me know, and we'll have a coffee together about our wonderful time in the Dodge Challenger. But anyway, in the main session, Andy Stanley said this. He has this question, what is the faith of the next generation worth to you? What is the faith of the next generation worth to you? And he said, our answer should be everything. It should be everything. And he went on to talk about how if we want to connect people to Jesus, there are going to be some important things that we have to do. There's always new things that we have to do. We have to figure out exactly where the culture is and how we engage the culture and how we move into the culture and we have an outward focus and how we adapt ourselves to the culture but also have an inward focus at times and so that we nurture and we grow in the spirit of those who are already here in the church. And then he said something else. 
He said this great quote, we must tether people to the resurrection. I thought it was so fitting because we're going through the risen season, or a series, Jesus is alive, right? And the understanding that we should tether people to the resurrection. And so when we go out into the world, we actually should tether people to the truth of the resurrection, not the truth of other things that, that the church has come up with, but the, that truth that we believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And that's what actually propelled the Bible. That's what actually came about and propelled these early disciples to then take the gospel to the world and, and on and on and on it went. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says this. He speaks about the resurrection. He says, but tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that couldn't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead, and if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all of you, all who have died believing in Christ, are lost. That's, that's, some, that's some deep words, isn't it? It's important to understand the resurrection, and that's why we're traveling through this series, the Risen series, and understanding that, yes, resurrection happened to Jesus Christ on that Sunday and Easter that we all come and we celebrate and we get fired up about and we have huge crowds, but it also impacts us each and every day. And there should be some hope that we find in it. And it, and it shapes our lives each and every day as we look at the different appearances in which Christ appeared to his disciples and his followers after he was risen. And it's so vitally important, again, to our faith. So here I want to ask you this question. Have you ever done anything? Have you ever said anything that you totally regret? Right? Have you ever done anything, said anything, or not said something that you totally regret? I guarantee you have. And if you haven't, you're lying, right? I mean, you're a lion. People say, oh, I don't regret anything in my life. I'm like, yeah, you're lying. You are so lying. Because we regret a lot of different things in our lives, especially those times that we have become wiser because we have missed something. We have, we've made a choice or we have made a decision. Whatever it is in our life, we have said some things or not said some things. So I regret something in my life. I look back, I mean, it's really just minor blip, but I had this maroon Dodge 1998 pickup truck. It was an extended cab. It had a little bit of a lift on it, so I thought it was kind of cool. I could drive over your little tiny car if I wanted, you know, that type of thing. Um, and I, I got it from a friend of mine that just took such great care of his vehicle. It was immaculate condition, okay? And so I had this other truck that I had leased, 
And once the lease came up, I wanted to buy a used car, make a good financial decision, say, I don't want to pay that lease payment anymore. I want to just, I want to pay a payment for, you know, a few years and then I want to be done with the car payment. This is when all our kids were little. So we needed extra money for diapers and everything else that we, you know, you need money for. And so I made that decision, got, you know, out of the lease, of course, and then bought this truck. And, and I love this truck. It was perfect. You know, we could put kids in the back, even though it had an extended cab, didn't have one of those quad cab things, and it, it, but it was big enough. Well, it was the springtime, I guess it was 2007, and I knew I was headed to Tyler to be appointed at Marvin UMC. We were in the Dallas-Fort Worth. I was still at White's Chapel UMC, and we were headed for a staff retreat. I had to do something, and so I had to drive my own car down to the staff retreat. The rest of the staff took a bus. And so got down to Georgia, I mean Georgetown, sorry, got down to Georgetown, and I drove back with one of our pastors after the retreat. And as I was driving along I-35 going north, what happened was is there was this police officer that was helping somebody, pulled somebody over on the right side of the road, and I was slowing down like a good citizen, and like the law says to do, slow down a little bit. Well, the drunk driver behind me didn't see me slow down. Now, I'm talking slow down. Instead of going 75, I'm going 65. And the drunk driver must have been doing 85 or 90, and he just plowed into the back of my truck. Well, luckily, it had a little raised, you know, lift on it. And so he basically just went underneath the back of the truck and demolished the front of his car. But my truck was a little out of sync, had all sorts of, you know, issues with the bed and, and I had to go to the body shop and check things out. And they fixed everything up. Everything was great. But then I started having all those little tiny problems, you know. All those little leaks that would happen that didn't happen before, and I was arguing with my insurance company because this guy didn't have any insurance, and so I'm arguing about fixing this, fixing that. One day, I'm driving along. It's like 100 degrees out. I got my three little you know, kids in the back, and Jamie's at work, and the truck overheats in the middle of an intersection. I pull off to the side, and it's 100 degrees out. I'm like, what am I going to do? I called my parents. Luckily, they lived like two miles away, and I said, hey, come grab us. I need you to rescue me. So after a while, I began to think, hey, we're about to move to Tyler. We're not going to have parents around, and I'm not going to know a whole lot of folks yet, and so we're going to be driving back and forth from Tyler to visit family. Why don't I get a new truck? And so I traded in that maroon Dodge truck for a new truck. And ultimately, that new truck that I traded in for had all sorts of problems, caused us all sorts of financial stuff because it wasn't really the right choice at the right time. You know what I mean? And I regret getting rid of that old truck. We do all sorts of things, again, behaviors, actions, decisions, choices, things said, things unsaid that we regret. Simon Peter was the number one disciple for Jesus. He was the one that sort of was going to lead the church, right? Lead the movement for Jesus. And Simon Peter had this personal relationship with Jesus over these three years. He had learned from him. He had listened to him. He was living life with Jesus. And Jesus predicts on the night that he would be arrested that Peter would actually deny him three times. And Peter says, ain't, ain't going to happen. No way. I'd never do that. I'm totally committed to you, Jesus. Well, what happens is that night he's arrested, Peter is outside the high priest's 
house in the courtyard around this charcoal fire, and he is warming himself, and three times he is asked, aren't you that guy, one of his disciples of Jesus of Nazareth? And he says, I am not, I am not, I am not. Three times he denies Jesus. Can you imagine the regret in Peter's heart? I mean, let alone it his supposed Lord, Savior, Messiah goes to the cross and he dies. And, and I mean, the regret. And even after Jesus has risen, he's thinking to himself, yeah, but man, when it got hard, I, I just didn't stick with him. You know, you have some things in your life that you regret. You know, they become like a fog, right? You, you, that, there are lens. Sometimes you do something, you regret it, and, and you like have such remorse or repentance or whatever, but it, it's like you can't think about anything else. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're just sitting there, and people could be talking to you in your daydreaming about the conversation you need to have with the person that you hurt or, or the decision you made that you regret. Whatever it is, it becomes your lens and your fog. You want to redo. You want a second chance, There's a Japanese company called Nintendo. I think it's still around, but this was 1980. And they had this arcade game, Radar Scope. I've never heard of it before I heard this story, never played it. It's one of those one button joystick, one joystick games, sort of like Space Invaders, okay? If you remember Space Invaders. Well, it was Nintendo's biggest game in Japan and they wanted to expand into the US market. So what they did is they had this warehouse in New Jersey, and they actually produced in Japan 3,000 of these radar scope units, consoles, and they shipped them all to this New Jersey warehouse. They had 1,000 pre-sales for this game, console, and then nothing else happened. Nobody else was biting. Basically, they had these 2,000, you know, 2,000 of these game consoles that were actually just sitting there doing nothing. Well, they probably had a little bit of regret for going that big and that bold into the U.S. market. They promised that they were going to have another big hit. If you want to buy from us, we're going to have another big hit. And it wasn't even developed yet. It wasn't even created yet. So the U.S. portion of the company decided to have an internal competition. This young employee had no gaming experience at all, No creativity in the sense of games, never produced anything. He came up with this idea, just a basic storyline, that there was going to be this plumber who was going to rescue a girl from an evil villain, and the evil villain was going to be a gorilla, okay? And later on, as they developed this game, they called the plumber, not Jumpman, which was the original name, but Mario. They gave him a name. And thus was born Donkey Kong. Who played Donkey Kong out there? Anybody play or watch their kids or grandkids play Donkey Kong, right? So what they did is they took these 2,000 uh, radar scope units and they converted them. They turned actually the monitor sideways and to fit the game. It took two months to get this sort of second chance going for them. And they, it's amazing to think because if, Radar scope actually took off and was more popular than Donkey Kong would never been possibly invented. But the second chance, this failure that they had, they took it and they created a very successful game when I was growing up. And probably you would say the most successful video game character of all time, Mario, who has been in 
over 200 titles in video games. We worship a God of second chances, right? We, we, that's what we believe. That's, the resurrection brings a second chance to all of humanity, to all of us, even after death. Now, Psalm says this, I yelled for help and you put me together. God, you pulled me out of the grave, gave me another chance at life when I was down and out. Luke, in chapter 24, verse 34, referenced it last week, has an appearance of Jesus with Peter. And it's obscure. It just says, and he appeared to Peter alone. But that was Peter's time to talk with Jesus, his second chance, to kind of have that conversation, deep conversation, that it was a conversation of reconciliation, wasn't it? I mean, we don't know the details of that, but that was a time that Jesus and Peter had these hard conversations of what took place and where were they going and all that. And you know how Jesus handled that. He handled it with grace. He handled it with love and mercy. Guarantee you. Well, John's gospel is where we're gonna be talking about uh, chapter 21, okay? So if you got your scriptures, you can open to John's gospel, chapter 21. John's gospel doesn't end with the resurrection of Jesus in the Sunday morning. It actually ends with a challenge to his disciples, a challenge to Peter, and I think to us as well. And a challenge for me that I think displays some characteristics or some facts of what a committed follower of Jesus is. And some of the characteristics and understandings of that. And the first is this. I want to share with you, following Jesus always includes a second chance. Always includes second chances, third, fourth chances. Also, following always costs you something. Always costs you something. If it doesn't cost you something, you're probably not following him. Following Jesus is a call to love and spiritually nurture other people. Okay? It's a call to nurture and love other people spiritually. And then, and then following is a call to obedience and action. And I wanted to share these four things that I gleaned from this little ending story in John because I want you to see them play out as Jesus has this encounter with his disciples and with Peter. So let's go into that. Let's dive into John 21. It said, later Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. This is how it happened. So that's what we're talking about, this appearance of Jesus. And he said, earlier to his disciples, go to Galilee, you know, wait, tell the disciples to wait for me in Galilee. This was a little bit of a trip from Jerusalem to Galilee. And it had already been a couple of weeks, maybe a week and a half or so. So this is two plus weeks in which Jesus then appears to his disciples on at the Sea of Galilee. Several of the disciples were there. We hear who's there. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John, John who's writing this gospel, and the two and two other disciples. We don't know who they were. Seven total disciples. Simon Peter says, "I'm going fishing." Okay. Well, we'll come too. They all said. So they went out in the boat, but they caught nothing all night. A lot of times, people say that. Well, the disciples have given up on Jesus. He wasn't, didn't show up in time, you know. They're going to go off and they're going to do their own thing. They're going back to being fishermen. That's not actually the case. I think they had learned to wait on Jesus. I think they had learned to trust Jesus. And he said to wait, and they were going to wait. But what do you do when you're waiting for something important? 
A lot of times you do little chores, don't you? You do little things to kind of take your mind off of what you're waiting on. Just to be productive. They want to be productive in the midst of this waiting period. Maybe they need to earn a little money at that point in time. They were fishermen, most of them. And so, like us, they were doing some sort of chore or whatever it was. But they had no fish. They, all night long, they didn't catch any fish. And at dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. Okay, why couldn't they see that? We hear later here in a minute, verse eight, that they were 100 yards, a football field away, which is quite a bit ways away. It was a morning, could have been a morning mist as well, and 100 yards with a little mist, you wouldn't know who's yelling at you. You know, maybe the sea's kind of lapping against the boat and you can't quite hear the voice of that one. Maybe Jesus looked totally different. Would we kind of, we hear that in some of the appearances, that he looks a little different, he hadn't revealed himself to them yet, but... But that might be why they didn't recognize him. He called out, fellas or fellows, have you caught any fish? No, they replied. Then he said, throw out your net on the right side, right hand side of the boat and you'll get some. So they did and they hadn't, they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in there. Well, why would they throw it on the other side? Maybe they had a better perspective from Jesus. He, he could look out maybe 100 yards and go, it looks like a school of fish over there. I mean, we don't know exactly why they did that. Maybe they thought, well, why not? First of all, they didn't know it was Jesus. Hey, one more try. Maybe we'll catch some fish. Even if they knew it was Jesus, they had just realized their best friend had like raised from the dead. I mean, God can do anything. Why not try something else? So they did. Then the disciple Jesus loved, which would have been John, who was writing this gospel. Wouldn't you love to refer to yourself as the disciple that Jesus loved? Wouldn't that be awesome? Love the disciple that Jesus loved. Marty, you know, whatever. Um, so Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. When the Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumped into the water, and headed to shore. Shows Peter's enthusiasm. And then it goes on. The others stayed in the boat and pulled the, load, the loaded net to the shore, for they were only 100 yards from shore. When they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them, fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Jesus had picked up some fish, bread from town. Jesus was providing for them. Maybe he didn't pick it up. Maybe he just created it right there. Maybe he caught it himself, made it himself. Whatever it was, Jesus was providing again for his disciples. He was nourishing them in the moment. They had been fishing all night long, and he wanted to nourish them. He wanted to give them time of fellowship. He wanted to spend time with them. All very, very important. And a side note on the charcoal fire. It's interesting, I was talking with uh, uh, Janet Chenoweth and they were telling me when they went to the Holy Land, they learned some things about this charcoal fire and I looked it up. And it's interesting, charcoal fire in the New Testament is used twice in the Gospel of John only. It's used a couple of times in the Old Testament, but twice in the Gospel of John. Anybody wanna know or guess, <laughs> guess where the other time was that charcoal fire like this, this word was used. John 18, 18, when Peter was standing around a charcoal fire warming himself in the courtyard. Isn't that interesting? When he denied Christ three times. And we hear about a similar fire, probably has a similar aroma, right? Brought back maybe those memories. And Jesus 
again is reinstating him here in just a moment. He says, bring some fish, bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus said. So Simon Peter went aboard and dragged the net to the shore. There were 153 large fish, and yet the net hadn't torn. Fish for breakfast. Anybody ever had fish for breakfast? Yeah, a few of us out there. Good, good. I I'd had that when I was a kid growing up north um, in Illinois and, and Minnesota, visit our cousins and aunt and uncle. We'd fish a lot up in Minnesota in the summer, and we were at the lake, and we would catch all these fish, and then we would actually have fish and eggs for breakfast. So I, I loved it. It was always great. But Jesus says, hey, let's eat of your bounty, right? The bounty I help you catch, right? Your effort. You gave the effort, but I also blessed your obedience, right? You threw the net over to the side, not knowing what would happen one more time, and you obeyed me, and look what happened. And so Jesus continues to multiply the very efforts of those who answer his call, who work for him, who follow him. Miracles happen, right? So now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to this, his disciples since he had been raised from the dead. Again, third appearance, appearance to a group of disciples, but the eighth appearance overall to different people. So this is a reinstatement moment because following Jesus actually includes second chances, third chances, fourth chances. And this was Peter's sort of second chance, right? He didn't doubt that Peter would be faithful to him. What Jesus was trying to do is give this chance of Peter to actually commit himself in a public way around these disciples that probably heard of his denial of Jesus, right? Maybe Peter shared it with him. Also to any other followers that were around. And so Jesus wants to reinstate him in front of the disciples that he's the guy that's going to ultimately lead them. And we can learn so much from how Jesus questions Peter. Because, again, we have these second chances when we follow Jesus, but also following Jesus costs you something. And so Jesus says, after breakfast, uh, he asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Do you love me more than these? Not, not, not more than do you love, like, do I love Jesus more than you love Jesus, but it's the do you love me, Jesus, more than you love other people or other people's opinions of you or your popularity or your position or your personal mission? That's what Jesus is saying over your career, over other people, over other things. He uses the word agape love, agape love, for it's this Christ-like love of the will. Do you truly love me at all costs? That's what Jesus is asking Peter at all costs. This is that John 3, 16 love. And so when you follow Christ, it's a call to love and spiritually nurture other people. You're not just called to follow, you're called to actually follow and have some action, and that's love and spiritually nurture other people. And it's so challenging because it's a love, an unselfish sort of love for sinner, for people who are sinners or are far from God or are people that 
are our enemies, people that hurt us, people that think like us. It's that sort of love. And Jesus said, feed, then feed my lambs. Lambs were the ones that were under a year old and and they weren't the sheep. They weren't the older ones. They were the younger ones. They were the young converts. And so, Peter, are you going to love the young people in faith? Not, not just young of age, but young people who have come to faith and, and will come to faith. Peter responds, yes, I love you. He responds with filio love. Jesus, I love you intimately, passionately, uh, affectionately, personally. And it goes on. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know that I love you, then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Jesus uses love again as agape love. Peter uses and responds as love, filio love. Then take care of my sheep. It's not just about the babies in faith, Jesus says. It's about everybody. Nurture them, take care of them physically and spiritually. And a third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time, and he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. See, Jesus replies here with filio love, not agape love. He actually says, you love me as the Father loves me, as the Father loves the Son, so following Jesus is a call to not only love and nurture, but a call to obedience and action. It's not just belief, it's obedience and action. But to carry out that commission, that call to follow, it actually means you have to love not only Jesus, but also the people that God loves. All humankind, all mankind. See, God loves those that he created. And so it's not just, hey, Peter, are you gonna love me or even you? Are you gonna follow me? Oh, love me. And no, it's, it's love me and love others around you. The obedience to the mission of Jesus and obedience is to live out in love as a characteristic action of the follower of Jesus and the body of Christ, his collection of believers. So would Peter actually be staying firm? Would he live up to this challenge, this calling? Would he love at all costs? Because he hadn't been doing that before. He wasn't loving at all costs. I mean, Jesus came to be arrested, and Jesus was willing to love those even that were arresting him, and Peter grabbed a sword and chopped off a guy's ear, right? And Jesus wasn't really pleased with that. That wasn't loving at all costs. That wasn't trusting Jesus' way of doing things. Loving others for Peter was a huge obstacle at that time. And he was going to have to learn what does it truly mean to, to love in the way that Jesus asked us to love. And that, that's a challenge for all of us as well. Will we do that? Will we love that way? Will we nurture that way? Will we follow that way? Will we obey his calling in that particular way? So let me close just wrap up real quick with the rest of the story. Jesus shares with Peter that if he's gonna do this, if he's gonna follow him, then it's gonna lead him to be bound and actually crucified. And you're, he's gonna die from crucifixion. He doesn't say it quite that way, but we can assume he does. And then he says, that's gonna glorify God. And then he says, follow me, Peter. Well, Peter, much like us, 
attention begins to, you know, wane a little bit, right? And so Peter's like, okay, that sounds <laughs> not much fun. What about John? You know, I mean, what about him? What about him? You know, is he going to have the same sort of thing or whatever? And Jesus says, let's refocus, Peter. We're not worried about John. We're worried about you. What about you? Because Jesus is, it's like your personal question. He's asking personal question to you. It's not a what about me, it's what about you. And so what he says is concerning John, as for you, follow me. As for you, follow me. There is this response to the resurrection of Jesus. There's a response to the cross. And it's a personal response. It's, it's not like what, what's Marty doing or what's somebody else doing. It's, it's what are you doing? And I think there's some characteristics and facts that go along with that as we see in this that following Jesus always includes a second chance, probably a third, a fourth, hundredth. Following Jesus always costs you something. If, if, if you do, doesn't cost you anything, you're not really actually following. Following Jesus is a call to love and spiritually nurture other people. It's not just a call to love Jesus. It's a call to love Jesus and then love all those that Jesus loves. And then the fourth is following is a call to obedience and then action. Is to actually be the hands and the feet of Christ in the world around us. And that's our challenge. That's, that's our calling, just like it was for Peter. Let's go to God in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we hear these words and we're challenged. I hate to say sometimes we don't always live up to that and we regret it. Lord, when we think of mothers, they seem to always love us when we aren't lovable, much like you. Lord, we just pray that you break into our hearts through the love we have for you, may we begin to, to love others. May we answer that call. And I don't know where everybody is right now in life, Lord, but it's not just about me personally standing up here. It's about, it's about them personally as well. And so I just ask you to break in their heart and their mind, reassure them, give them peace that you are calling them. And it's a great privilege to respond and love and nurture others in obedience and action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I hope you enjoyed this message. And if you did, I invite you to support our ministry by giving online at jwumc.org give. Also would invite you to find a church to attend on a regular basis or join us at John Wesley on Sunday mornings at 8.15, 9 o'clock, and 11.15. God bless and have a great week.